The sermon text uh, comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give, you, give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know that what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we have just been looking at the first few uh, sentences here. Um, and Ephesians is a letter that is written to the church. It is written to Christians who are living in the Roman part of Asia. And this part that we just read, Paul tells the Ephesians that ever since he heard about their faith, ever since he heard that there were Christians in this part of the country, he has not ceased to give thanks for them and to pray for them. He has not stopped praying ever since he heard about their faith. So the question is, what did he pray? What was his top concern, the thing that he wanted to ask on behalf of this church? I'm sure there were lots of things going on in Ephesus at the time. I'm sure there were plenty of uh, political news. I'm sure lots of people were sick. I'm sure lots of families needed to be prayed for. But the thing he prays for is not about current events. It's not about health concerns. He says, I have not ceased to pray that you would know God. He hasn't stopped praying that the people there would know God. And as we read through these verses, I think it's going to become clear why that above all other things is what Paul emphasizes. And why that above all other things is what we need to emphasize in the church. And so that's, that's all I want to talk about this morning, knowing God. I want to talk about the priority of knowing God, the, the particular details of knowing God, and the power of knowing God. The priority, the particulars, and the power of knowing God. So let's talk about that. Uh, this week, I, was, I found this essay where a young writer was talking about his first experience with sex. And the theme of the essay was about his disappointment with it. Uh, he described how, despite these great expectations, ultimately, that encounter was unfulfilling. He said, what bothered me was that even after something so intimate, my insecurities had heightened. I knew less of her than I did before. And he goes on in this essay to talk about how over the years, he had similar encounters, and every time he came back with the same sense of expectation. But he said, each time a familiar sensation of hollowness settled over me. But what struck me most about that was not the story. I mean, I think that story is actually fairly common. But what struck me about it was his conclusion. Because he decided that the problem was not that his expectations were wrong. He decided the problem was not that he, he wasn't ever going to find what he was looking for, but he said that he was looking in the wrong place. And he imagined someday off in the future where he was romantically uh, had found the right person. And he said, in my mind, I can see it. We're together. I look in her eyes, and there she is, my wife. 
And instead of feeling insecure with her, I will know her and she will know me. So this guy, he believed that the intimacy that he longed for was going to be found within marriage. And now, of course, there's some truth to that, right? There is, because sex in marriage is different. It has a a different purpose uh, within the boundaries of a covenant. But as I was thinking about that story, I couldn't help but realize that this man's hope, this guy's feeling that some unknown woman out in the future was going to meet his longings, that some unknown woman was going to be able to know him, and he was going to know her, that he could know and be known, that those expectations were, were too much. And any married person, right, any, any married person in this room can tell you that marriage is that place. It's a place where there is a new level of intimacy, where there is a new level of knowing and exposure. It's the place where probably you will feel most connected in this life. But I think married couples will also tell you that it is a place where you can feel most lonely. It is a place where you can feel most disconnected. It's a place where you can feel most misunderstood. And to one degree or another, every human relationship is like that. Every human relationship aggravates this nerve, this desire to be understood, this desire to know and be known perfectly, and there is no one on earth that can meet that expectation. Not even a spouse, not even the the ideal mate off in the future. But instead, this desire is just one of those many signposts in our lives. It's one of many desires that that point away from this reality to something else. It's It's a sign showing us that we were made to know and to be known by the living God. That's the relationship that we're all longing for, that this world is longing for, that we're constantly seeking after, but we're looking for it in the wrong place. And as I've studied this passage, I've come to realize that, unfortunately, it's not just people outside of the church that that find themselves in this place. But there are a lot of Christians as well who find themselves feeling lonely, feeling detached and disconnected and unloved feeling far from God, like he is holding out on them in some way. Uh, James Boyce is a pastor, he was a pastor in the end of the 20th century in Philadelphia. And he was interviewed one time and someone asked him, what is the greatest need in the church today? And as he considered it, he said, I think the greatest need in the church today is for professing Christians to really know God. So the greatest need in the church is for professing Christians to really know God. And his answer is the same as Paul's answer 2,000 years before that. And that's why he prays this. Verse 16, if you've got your Bibles, you can open them and look along. But he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. His main desire for the church was that they would know God. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to know God? Well, I think it's worth saying that this, it's more than just head knowledge that we're talking about. 
We live in this world now where information is accessible to us in a way that the world has never seen before in its history. If you want to know about something, if you want to become an expert on something, you can probably do it with a little bit of time and effort, right? You want to know about King Tut? Well, walk down the street, go to the Eggleston Library, check out some books and read them. Want to know how to fix your broken toilet? You can go on YouTube and watch videos for a few hours, and, and you can probably fix it. If you want to know about the city of Boston, you want to learn about demographics and history and, and, and all about the city, all you got to do is, is Google it, and you'll find it out. And it's easy to think in a world like that that knowing God is some version of the same process. If you hear enough sermons, if you read enough books, if you learn the right theology, eventually you'll know God. If you're really serious about it, you can even pay to go to a seminary. And, and they'll teach you more about this stuff. And at the end, they'll give you a piece of paper that says that you are a master of divinity. But of course, right, we laugh because you're not. You're not a master of divinity because knowing God is, is not the same thing as knowing about God. On the other hand, knowing God is not just about feelings either. Knowing God is not just some sixth sense, some set of tingly moments in your life that tell you you know God. A while back, I was talking to some guy, and he told me, well, the, t the way I feel closest to God, the, the moments I feel like I know God best on a Sunday morning is when, not when I'm in a church, but when I'm on top of a mountain looking at God's creation. But you know, God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself in his word, and he's told us how we're supposed to worship him, and he says very specifically, that's not what you're supposed to do. So just because you feel close to God, it doesn't mean you actually are close to God. So what is Paul praying about when he says you need to know God? Well, he's saying that we should know something beyond mere head knowledge and beyond mere emotional expression. He prays that the Holy Spirit himself would give them wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He restates it. He says, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And that word know, he says that you may know. That word is, uh, he's talking about the Hebrew way of knowing. It's a concept that's more than, than just about the facts. It's actually the exact same, uh, it's used the exact same way the Old Testament uses it in, in Genesis 4 where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they had a son. This know is a, a knowing that has both intimacy and knowledge in it. Paul prays that we would know that, that for every Christian, God would reveal himself, that his Holy Spirit would speak truth, not just to our minds, but to our hearts as well. And practically, that means that we would pick up this Bible, and that we would read its words, and we would hear God speak to Jeremiah and say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And we would learn that passage, but then also the Spirit would speak to us what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, I chose you. You're mine. I know you. And so that's where Paul starts. 
That's the first thing Paul wants to pray for because that's the first place we mess up. Ultimately, our, our struggles always go back to this one thing, to our need to know God. So often we get confused, right? We think what we really need, what we need to be happy is more of X, Y, or Z. We think that our struggles, the reason we wrestle with the same sin, the reason we're trapped is because maybe we lack some strategy. Maybe we haven't read enough books on the subject. But Paul says the thing that we need more than anything else, the thing that we really lack, the thing that we should pray for is the knowledge of God that comes by the power of his spirit. So that's the first thing. The first thing we need to know is to know God. But even that, I think, is still kind of hazy. It's still a little bit abstract. So let's talk about some of the particulars. This is the second thing I want to address, the particulars of knowing God. So again, look at verse 18. Paul goes on. He prays that we'd have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he's called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So as Paul continues to pray, he prays that we'd know God. But he prays that we would know God in a couple of very specific ways. Did you hear him? The first thing he says is, I pray that you would know God by knowing the hope to which you've been called. By knowing the hope to which you have been called. In other words, Paul is praying that that we would know the content of our salvation. We'd know what it is that has been promised to us through Christ. That we would know those very basic Christian doctrines. Those basic Christian truths. The fact that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works. That we have a guarantee from His Holy Spirit that we will be sanctified. That we will be made holy. And that one day we will be glorified. That one day we will stand in the presence of the living God. We should know those things. John Stott, the British pastor, he summed it up by saying, this is a prayer that we would know that God has called us to Christ and to holiness, to freedom and to peace, to suffering and to glory, that he has called us to an altogether new life in which we know love, in which we serve Christ, in which we enjoy fellowship with him and each other, and we look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. That's pretty dense. There's a lot of theology in there. Honestly, every little section of that answer deserves its own sermon. But even more than that, even more than its own sermon, what what Paul's trying to tell us here is is these things require a heart-level knowledge. They require a an apprehension of this truth, that we would know the hope that we've been called to. And notice that phrase too, the hope to which you've been called. He doesn't say that you would know your hope. This isn't some hope that starts with you, that originates in you, or or even that ends in you, but it is a hope that is rooted in God. The gospel's beginning and end is in God and in his glory. The hope of the gospel starts and ends with him. Okay, so that word hope, though, we, 
We use that a little differently today, and I think it's worth mentioning. Because when we talk about hope in our society, we're usually talking about things that are uncertain, right? We're talking about things out in the future. You know, I, I hope that uh, I get this job, or I hope, I hope nobody saw me run that red light, right? My kids are, are constantly telling me about their hopes. Uh, one of them, in fact, gave me their Christmas list this week. So uh, she's hoping to get a lot of new things six months from now, seven months from now. But we use hope to talk about things that aren't sure. We use hope to talk about things that are uncertain. But that's not how the New Testament talks about hope. In Hebrews, he says that our Christian hope is a sure and a steadfast anchor to our souls. That the Christian's hope is a certain hope. That knowing the gospel, that knowing the hope that you have been called to is actually meant to anchor your soul. It's meant to ground your life. But is that really true of us? Is that really true of you? What would you say if there is a hope that you're looking towards? What is the hope that anchors your soul? For that essay I was reading, his hope was that someday the right woman would come along and she would fulfill all his desires. That was the hope that was grounding his life. And as I read that, I, I really pitied the woman who was going to meet him and have the weight of all of his expectations on them. And I pitied him as I thought about living this life with this uncertain hope, expecting this thing that hadn't yet come and maybe never would to be the thing that would make him feel complete. Those things aren't big enough. The only hope that can anchor our souls is the sure hope that has been made known to us by God. The sure hope that in Christ we are destined for glory. We are destined to be with him for all eternity. And so Paul starts there. He, say, he prays first that in knowing God, we would know the hope to which we have been called. But then secondly, he says this. He says that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, so the first thing was knowing the hope to which we've been called. The second thing is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What does that mean? Well, that's what we've been talking about. That's the same point we've been making this whole month, right? That, that Paul's letter is not just written to you, but it's written to you, all of you. It's written to us. It's written in the plural. It's written to the church. And Paul is praying that we would get the notion, that we would understand, that we would know that there is this glorious inheritance that is the people of God, that the Lord's inheritance is the church. It's his people who he has redeemed. And so when he's saying he wants us to know God more, when Paul is praying that we would understand more of God, he says that, that we need to understand first that we're not alone in this. That we're not alone in this journey. That the glorious hope we have been called to, all those great doctrines of salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all those wonderful benefits we were just talking about, that all of that stuff is a salvation that we enjoy together. 
We enjoy it as this new community, these people of God. That's the glorious thing about this salvation. The glorious thing about this salvation is we get to do it together. This church, these people, this is Christ's visible body on earth. Look around. Look around you. You can see Jesus here. Paul wants us to realize that those two things working together, knowing the hope that we've been called to and the riches of God's gathered people, those two things are crucial for our faith. They are crucial for our Christian life. And I was thinking about this. I ended up listening to a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon who, if you don't, he's a much better preacher than me. You guys should go listen to him. He was a preacher in the 60s in England and, and you know, just to give you an idea of how much better a preacher is, you know, I've preached like five sermons on Ephesians. He preached 232 sermons in his Ephesians series. It's like five years worth of Ephesians, and every one of them is fantastic. And so I was listening to this sermon uh, on just one of the words in our passage today, um, and it brought me to tears because he said the main trouble with all of us is our failure to realize the greatness of the salvation into which we've been brought and to which we enjoy together. Let me repeat that. He said, the main trouble with all of us is our failure to realize the greatness of the salvation into which we have been brought and to which we enjoy together. And when I heard that, it really nailed me. Because I realized, as I was listening to him, that so much of my life, is defined by fear. So much of my life is defined by anxiety. A desire to know the things that I can't know. A desire to remove the uncertainties in my life. But what would my life be like if I knew the hope God had called me to? What would your life be like if you really believed that you were free from the burden of the law. If you really believe that God was pleased with you because of Jesus, if you really believe that you didn't have to, to, to make something of yourself, you didn't have to find your purpose because you have already been connected to your eternal purpose, to know Him and to glorify Him forever. What would your life look like if you knew you weren't alone? but that God has already graciously brought you into this community of people who will walk with you in this life and all the way into eternity. Paul prays this for the church because he knows it will change us. He knows that to the extent that we know God, to the extent that we understand this reality, we will be able to face anything on this earth. We will be able to face any joy or any pain, right? Because we, won't, we can enjoy the, the pleasures of the world. We can enjoy the joys of the world. We can enjoy the, that partner that God might bring to us, but we don't have to saddle them with the expectations that they're going to save us. And we can endure the pain of this world. We can suffer without succumbing to fear because we know that ultimately there is a sure and steadfast hope that will be ours. 
Because we know that Christ, in Christ, God has called us to this. God has called us to a sure hope. And in his mercy, he has introduced us to these people. He has connected us to these people who will be there living it out with us forever. But there's a third thing here as well that Paul talks about, and this is the, the, the third thing I want to highlight here. It's the power of knowing God. That, that there is a power that comes with knowing God, and he prays it very specifically and, and very boldly here. Look in verse 19. He says he prays that we would know the hope to which he's called us, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is his immeasurable greatness? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? If you've been around the church for a while, you know how God displays his power in salvation. Right? We know that narrative of scripture that tells us that we're all we were all hopelessly lost without him, right? That we were all like that guy writing that essay, that we all have this desire to know and to be known. And we're, we're constantly coming up to these desires, these signposts that are pointing us to God, pointing us to things that only he can fulfill in us, and yet we never go to God. Instead, left on our own, we go everywhere else. We, we look everywhere else to be satisfied by everything else. And that's because of our sin. Scripture tells us because of our sin, we reject God, we run from God, we do not seek God. Psalm 14 says there is no one who seeks God, not even one. And because of that, we're far from him. We're actually under his wrath. We are destined to be judged by him. But then the gospel comes in. And it says while we were looking in all the wrong places, while we were looking to all the wrong things, God came and he sought us. In Christ, he sought us. Before the foundation of the world, God chose his people and determined to save them by coming down in the person of God the Son and bearing our penalty on the cross. And now he promises that, that everybody who comes to him in repentance, everyone who comes to him in faith, receives his perfect righteousness. That's the power Paul's talking about, at least the beginning of it. The way that God first displays his power in our lives is by forgiving our sins, by freeing us from the penalty of the law. But most Christians I know, we get that part, right? We can tell that story. And if you've never heard it before, that's, that's kind of the, the basic message. That incredible power of forgiveness is available to you. But I want us to keep looking at the words. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. I think that's what we need to get today. That's what I want us to take home with us this week. I want us to think about those words. Because this is telling us that when we know God, the power of God extends far beyond our salvation. The power of God in our life continues to work relentlessly in the life of every believer. It goes way beyond the initial forgiveness of sin. 
It is his working in us first to save us from death through his son, but then to transform us by his spirit into the likeness of his son. To actually make us holy. And so Paul is praying that the world would know the full extent of the power in them. But we often get caught up in that first little bit. We often get caught up in the story we know, and we're, we're like people who, who get into a car, and we're just so excited about the ignition that we turn on the engine, and we listen, and we sit there in amazement. But we forget that that car was designed to drive us for hundreds and thousands of miles. Paul prays that the Ephesian church would realize that God's power towards them is immeasurably great. So big, you cannot contain it. And I want us to join him in that prayer. I want us to pray that prayer. I want us to know that there is a great power in our salvation. That the Holy Spirit is at work right now, this moment in the life of everyone who believes. Do you realize that? Do you realize that apart from God working in your life right now, apart from God working in your life continually, you would not be able to walk with him for five minutes? Apart from his spirit being present in our lives, we would instantly go back to the way we were. We would all deny him and we would run. But you know what? God has said he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. That his spirit dwells in his people. That his power towards us today is immeasurably great. That same spirit that brought a man back from the dead, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And not just in you, but in us. In all of us, together, in this church, that spirit is at work. He has given us new life. He has made us a new community. And he will give us that new life all the way until eternity. And there is no chance that it will fail. Wow. What if we knew that? What if we knew him? Oh, that we would know that. That the eyes of our hearts would be open to see. That we would believe this hope that he's called us to. That we would see the riches of this family that he has brought us into. That we would believe this power that is at work within us. The living God. He's working in you. And he's not going to stop until you stand before him in glory. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Do you know him? Well, then, I want to invite us to draw near to him as we come to this table. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for these deep truths that you express in half of a sentence in Ephesians. It's really too much to get our minds around. But Lord, I am convinced that so many of us live our lives in ignorance and impotence when it comes to our faith. That we don't know you. That we don't experience the power of your spirit at work within us. 
that we still believe that we're going to find what we need in the things of this world. And so I pray that you would change us. Lord, I pray that you would transform us. And I pray for anyone in this room who may not know you at all. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself. Father, I pray that they would experience your power and that you would draw them to repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us, God, that we would come before you once again, reminded that the only thing that will satisfy us is you. Would you welcome us to this table and minister to us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.